When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. What does science have to tell us about the health of our relationships? Doctors John and Julie Gottman have spent their lifetime studying why some couples stay together while others fall apart. They translated their insights into actionable ideas for boosting romance in a new book called The Seven Day Love Prescription. They joined us for a live stream with the author, therapist and friend of the show, Julia Samuel. I thought maybe we'd start with the kind of fundamentals of people have talked about love since we've been human beings. What is it that you see love is or what is love and and why does it matter so much? You know, it's not a simple answer. When we talk about romantic love, uh, which is the essence of what we're doing in the book, love is really defined as an action. It's defined as a series of gifts that you're giving in action, in behavior, not materially necessarily, but in behavior that show that you really honor your partner as much or at times even more than yourself. So it's, of course, the first stage limerence, meaning you fall in love, all those chemicals are bubbling uh, and you're very attracted, but slowly but surely that may change just a little bit. But in the meantime, you are evolving as a couple and exploring each other's internal worlds to really know the human being you are connecting with. And loving that person means seeking and receiving connection from that person. Do you want to add something, honey? No, I think you've covered it. Okay. I mean, that's so lovely, and it's so different from the movies and the romantic films And even what we kind of see on social media, isn't it? The happy ever after, the limerence, the falling in love, the kind of cocaine of love, you know, which is is so addictive and exciting. And what you're talking about is the being in love, but the doing of love. And that that takes, you know, like the knowing takes knowing all of someone. It's loving someone despite and yet who they are. (laughs) Well said. (laughs) And I mean, with from you, John, 
as, as I divide you up, and we shouldn't divide couples up because, of course, you share <laughs> so much. You're the data man, and Julie is the the therapist woman. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot that's that you share, and of course, you do the work together. But you became fascinated in data and set up the Gottman Institute. And what was it about that, the kind of maths of love? Because before it's all been talk and poems and you actually got us crunchable data. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, going back 50 years, uh, my best friend Bob Levinson and I built a lab and we just synchronized the video time code to physiological measures we were getting from couples. So we were very interested in emotion and how it worked. And we never expected that we could account for so much of the variation, you know, that we'd have over 90% accuracy in predicting the future of a relationship, whether it was cross-sex or same-sex couples, and really following couples across the whole life course. And all of that research happened before Julie and I started working together. And Julie's clinical intuition and also her research training really helped the two of us build um, a system of intervention. And so you're right, it's really her genius that created these interventions. And so the next 26 years, Julie and I sort of started training therapists and giving workshops for couples and doing therapy with couples using our theory about what makes relationships work. Mm. Can I add a little bit to that, Julia? Yes. <laughs> so I think one of the most exciting pieces of John's research, and here's the genius, is that we created what we called an apartment lab, and it was tagged the love lab by the media, not by us. By the BBC. <laughs> the BBC? Yeah. I thought it was the, the LA Times. No, it was the BBC that oh, called it that. I see. Okay. So what we would do is we would bring a couple in and the space looked just like a little B&B room, little kitchen, little bedroom, and people would stay there for 24 hours. So it would feel like a little mini vacation. However, they were hooked up to Holter monitors, which measured three channels of cardiac activity, measured, uh, we took blood from them, we took urine from them to really look at stress hormones, how they were playing a role in the behavior of the two. We had cameras bolted to the walls. So those cameras were running 16 hours a day, collecting videotape. Then the time code hundredth of a second by hundredth of a second was analyzed, combining all of the videotape in terms of what the couple looked like, what they were saying to each other, what their faces looked like, right. combined with their physiology, what was happening physically inside their body. And from that, we learned an incredible amount that really helped us create the book that you're holding Julia, really, what are the subtle, small little nuggets of gold that couples give each other during an ordinary day that really make the difference between succeeding six or seven years down the road and 
not succeeding. Did you want right. to say what some of the, because I can really get that because you could see from their behaviors and their responses to the behaviors, what the biology and the physiology was doing. And that from, you know, how I know that we're wired, if you're, if you're in a fight, fight or freeze, if you feel like someone you're under threat, it's very difficult to feel safe and connected and have oxytocin. Whereas what, whereas if you feel calm and relaxed and connected, you kind of expand but how did you break that down into like here these seven prescriptions like the first one connect and check in with your partner do you want to say a bit about that and bids for connection and what that means by the way you're doing it with each other all of the time (laughs) you've been bidding for connection acknowledging allowing space moving in moving out it's you two can't get divorced, right? Because that would be terrible. I'm in love, so there's no point in getting divorced. <laughs> too old to look for anybody else. This is the best one right here. <laughs> you know, our camera operators in the control room started noticing that couples make these small attempts to connect that we call bids for connection. And they would automatically turn one of the cameras toward the partner to see the response. And there were three responses, either turning toward, which was acknowledging that attempt to connect, sometimes only saying, huh, yeah, (laughs) that was enough, or ignoring the attempt to connect, turning away, uh, turning toward was the first one, or responding irritably by saying, you know, know, stop interrupting me, I'm trying to read, uh, turning against. And we found that in following couples for seven years, that the couples who stayed together seven years after the wedding, when we look back seven years earlier, they had turned toward these bids an average of 86% of the time. Whereas the couples who wound up divorcing earlier had turned toward those bids only 33% of the time. So, you know, it seems it seems small, they're small moments, but they're really important. They really mount up and create kind of an emotional bank account in the relationship. I love that idea of an, of a, an emotional bank account, but it also goes against the kind of narrative that love is such hard work and it's these big romantic gestures and gifts and how right. much you earn and what's your language of love. And I think your language of love actually can influence it. But actually what you're saying is by being generative, by being emotionally open and receiving a pat on the shoulder, a hi, have you seen this? Or like you two have done in this in this seminar, that the person feels known and they feel that small little like, ah, I matter. Like Right, right, mm, right. It's exactly mm. right. Yeah. Let's let's role play so our audience can get a little sense mm-hmm. of what this looks like. Brilliant, Penny. Uh, you know, can can you help me fold the laundry? I, there's so much of it. I, I really need some help right now. So that's a turning away. So you are turning away. Now let's do turning against. Can I ask John what his experience of that is? So when she turned away from you, what was your sort of physiological sensation? <laughs> It makes me feel so alone and like I don't matter and almost like I haven't said anything. I, uh, you don't ooh, exist. I don't, I don't exist, yeah. And it's chilly to watch. 
I could feel the chill as I, because you, it's a risk always. Like loving is risky, as you said earlier, but it's a risk always to ask for help or to ask for affection or connection. And so when you're completely iced and blanked, Mm -hmm. retreat and I can imagine like thousands of little interactions like that that is why it would be a predictor of unhappiness yeah right that's right let's do the second hey honey uh can I get your help in folding the laundry there's so much of it I really uh really can't do it all myself listen would you stop interrupting me I'm trying to read that's so mean (laughs) Horrible, isn't turning it? against. That's turning against. And we see that a lot. And now let's do the third. Hey, honey, I've uh, got so much laundry to fold. Uh, can you help me out here? Uh, yeah, sure. Oh, great. That's all it takes. You don't always have to agree, do you? You have. You can say. I'll help you with the laundry, but I've got to finish what it's the way you say stuff, isn't it? It's not you're not saying no, it's that you can say no, but you say it with warmth and openness and acknowledging his need, right? Yeah, you can say it this way. Honey, I'd like to help you, but right now I'm right in the middle of an important email. Can you wait just a moment? Sure, yeah, I can wait. Let me finish it. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, great. I'll be done in a moment. Okay. So one of the things I really love as an image, and particularly when we're thinking of two people coming together from different family systems, whether it's a same-sex marriage or or whatever kind of partnership it is, that what you come with, your operating systems, your attachment styles, how you connect, what you've witnessed with your parents is likely to be different. And what I felt you really gave us a pathway to build understanding coming from these different families, even if they're very similar families, they're still very different, is this idea of increasing our love maps. Such a good term, love maps. I've never seen it anywhere. Do you want to talk a bit about love maps? And and also, like from your seven um, prescription, how you do it with open questions? Sure. So what we mean by love map is this. Imagine that all the history and experience of your partner is on a map inside them. What you are doing is learning about that map. Where are the important landmarks, the big events that really shaped who your partner is? Are there some terrible cracks where trauma may have occurred that also really shaped your partner? Where's the joy inside your partner? Mm. What gives them joy? What gives them feeling of down, of defeat? So you learn who your partner is by asking questions, particularly open-ended questions. And by that, we mean questions that have pages and pages for an answer, Mm -hmm. not a one-word question like, what's your favorite color? But instead, asking them, if you've started with that, what makes red your favorite color? Then there's an invitation in that question for the partner to really share that part of their internal world that 
they're aware of that's important to them that they feel comfortable sharing with you. Now, one thing that's very important is that you have to understand that people evolve over time. So their internal map, their love map is changing over time. They're shaped by their environment, by their interactions, by their work, by having children or grandchildren. They're constantly evolving and changing. That's why it's important to keep asking those open-ended questions, because that way you track who your partner is becoming, who your partner is growing into over time. That way also you maintain deep connection with your partner mm -hmm. because you're sharing history of the time together. And I can really, what I get from that is that thing of, you know, people say, I, you know, I, I was in love with you and I like you as a friend, but I'm not in love with you anymore. Or those, you know, those type of sort of statements. And it seems that your love maps are actually how you stay interested and curious and that you can have five different marriages with the same man or the same woman because you're not fixed on the one that you think you have, but you grow and change and shift your perspective. So you stay interested. You're not so bored or fed up with them because you're kind of, it's the, it's the energy and that energy is what keeps the relationship alive. No, Investing that energy right. in the relationship. Right. Every year, John and I take an annual honeymoon and we go to it. It's, it's kind of funny. Our daughter, when she was eight years old, went away to camp, overnight camp for a couple of weeks. Yeah. So we decided to take ourselves to overnight camp and went to this beautiful B&B. And that was, what, 24 years ago? Yeah. And every single year, except for the COVID years, we've returned to that same room at that same B&B &B for our annual honeymoon. During the honeymoon, we ask each other three big open-ended questions. What did you love about last year? What did you hate about last year? And what would you like our next year and your next year to look like. Right. So we can spend days discussing that. And again, it keeps us in tune with what's most important for each of us. And also going to the same place because your brain has a particular memory of place. It's like a ritual. So when mm -hmm. you go back to that place where you had your honeymoon, it imbues right. you with the embodiment of us when we're in honeymoon and the energy of that. And then the practice of the questions is very holding and containing, but also interesting. Like you look forward to it. Mm -hmm. We really do. Yeah. So John, with the data, I was, I love this thing in the book that there's, there's, there's a lot of stats about numbers. So can you talk to me about hugging for this long, kissing for that long? <laughs> How many more positive than ne negative? Because we, you know, this is very biased, but some people just like to be told what to do, that what will make a difference. So if you can say, but also tell us, explain why it does. Well, you mentioned uh, the hormone oxytocin, which yeah. is really the hormone of bonding. And, you know, all of us mammals secrete oxytocin when we cuddle, 
when we hug for more than 20 seconds, when we kiss for more than six seconds, we're secreting oxytocin. Is that a kiss on the cheek or a kiss on the lips, by the way? Usually a kiss on the lips. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I married a really good kisser. Okay, uh, nice. Really lucky that way. And so, you know, you make good kisses, don't you, Dave? I mean, I don't, yeah, necessarily, do. you don't necessarily marry one. You can make each other your good kisser. That's and, the- you know, what we found was that, and Helen Fisher really found this too, that being in love has no shelf life. You can be in love for 35, 50 years with the same person in love. And the way you do that is really by cuddling, by giving each other compliments, by saying I love you and meaning it, by touching, holding hands, even in public. These small things, these small moments, often, repeated often, is really what makes things work in the bedroom. And that's based on a study that was done with 70,000 people in 24 countries. Gosh, that's big. And it's true across the whole planet. What makes for a great, passionate sex life are these small moments in which you really communicate, I love you and you matter to me. And the appreciation. And so it's going from warm to hot. You can't go from cold to hot in a way, isn't it? So it's keeping right. the relation, the warmth of the relationship alive. And it isn't about swinging from lampshades or having amazing kit. <laughs> isn't it about wanting to show all of yourself to the other person and be seen intimately by the other person and you do it physically. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it contrasts with a study that was done in Los Angeles by the Sloan Foundation at UCLA, where they put cameras and microphones in the homes of dual career couples with young children. And they found that most couples really ignore the relationship. They talk to each other only about 35 minutes a week. And most of that conversation is about errands. Who's going to do what, when? And they spend less than 10% of an evening in the same room. And so if you neglect the relationship in that way, it really does deteriorate over time. So, I mean, in a way, what you're saying, the whole book is that it's this isn't it's the opposite of grand gestures. It's small moments of gratitude, of appreciation, bids for connection, asking, being curious. And, and the other thing that I was really interested in was the four horsemen of the uh, I can't say it, copolix, pop, apocalypse. There you go. <laughs> so I want you to say what they are, but. Is the connection and warmth and appreciation, is that the protective factor of the four horsemen? Because you just don't get so angry. You don't feel contemptuous. Is that what happens? Yeah. And it's also taking responsibility for even a small part of the problem and being willing to change yourself, being willing to listen. Yeah, let me first explain what the four horsemen are and then how they operate within the relationship. So, you know, many of you will be familiar (laughs) with these. John and I are very familiar (laughs) with them. Uh, So the first is criticism. And what criticism means is blaming a problem between you on a personality flaw of your partner. Something like, you're so lazy, you wouldn't think to clean up the kitchen, would you? 
that is criticism, lazy, thoughtless, inconsiderate, you know, all those awful negative words that make you cringe a little bit. And you can't win that, can you? You can't say, you can't fight it. You, you oh, can't yes, from it. Well, yes, you can say, I'm not lazy, but you can't, that criticism yeah. is, is it. Yeah, you can't, yeah, you don't have a good response to it. You can fight it by being defensive, which is number two. And defensiveness looks like either whining, and by the way, there's no good vintage of this, going like this. Um, God, you know, I really do work hard. I do the housework with that whining tone, right? So that's part of defensiveness. The other half, which is sometimes worse, is counterattack. Oh, yeah? You think I don't do anything? You're not even going out to work. There you go. Boom. So it's, you know, shots across the bow that are really painful and sometimes can cause some emotional injury. The third one that is the worst, this is sulfuric acid for the relationship, is contempt. And, you know, all of us probably at one time or another have experienced this. It's when somebody looks down their nose at you from a superior place with scorn, maybe a little disgust, face like that. If you have a teenager, you've seen it. (laughs) And it is criticism, but from a superior place. It can be manifested as sarcasm, mockery. Oh, you want me to do that? You know, it's it really shames you is what it does. It creates shame, which is extremely painful. One of the most painful emotions there are. So contempt not only predicts the course of the relationship, the number of times or the course of the conversation, the number of times a listener hears contempt in a 15-minute conversation, predicts how many infectious illnesses that person will have in the coming years. In other words, contempt not only erodes the relationship, it erodes the immune system of the listener. Mm -hmm. So that one is is really bad. And you want to try and avoid that as much as possible. And the fourth is what we call stonewalling. Now, remember, John and Bob, and then John and me measured physiology, the heart rate, what was going on inside the body when couples were having a conflict. Well, we did the same thing when one partner or perhaps both would stonewall. And what we mean by stonewalling is turning into literally a stonewall, not looking at your partner or looking at them glazed, and not giving any response that suggests you hear them, even a little, mm-hmm, not even that. So the other person feels totally shut out, like they're facing a wall. What we saw in the lab was that the people who stonewalled typically had heart rates above 100 beats a minute, or if they were athletic, 80 to 85 beats a minute, and maybe fidgeted more or froze more. All of that suggesting they were in fight, flight, or freeze, only the saber-toothed tiger they were facing in the moment was the partner. 
So the antidote, should we talk about those? I was was going to say, so if there are people watching who haven't built up a big bank of love and connection and warmth, and they feel like they're on the cliff edge of of the relationship breaking down, you know, what, what is the antidote? How can they begin to repair and reconnect and rebuild? Okay, so first of all, one needs to substitute for criticism what we call a softened startup, bringing up a problem. How do you bring it up? Instead of bringing it up with criticism, you bring it up with a series of I statements that go like this. I feel something like I'm upset about what? What's the situation? I'm upset that the kitchen is a mess. And what is your positive need, positive need? Not what not to do, what to do. I'm upset that the kitchen is a mess. Would you please clean it up? The need stated positively allows your partner to know how to shine for you. That's the antidote to criticism. Same thing with contempt. Again, I feel about what, what, and here's what I need. To defensiveness, what John was saying was absolutely spot on. You take even a little responsibility for whatever problem or the complaint is. Yeah, maybe I did do that. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. Fair enough (laughs) are my favorite words. Fair Fair enough. enough. You got me. And stonewalling. That's an important one. If you're in fight, flight, or freeze, what you need to do is to announce that you need to take a break or we should take a break exactly when you're going to come back. That's super important. So the partner doesn't feel shut out, rejected forever and knows you'll come back to talk. So say when you'll come back, maybe 20 minutes to an hour, two hours. Then you go somewhere else, out of sight, out of hearing range, and self-soothe by not thinking about the fight and what you're going to say, which will keep you internally upset, but instead doing something that takes your mind off it, reading a book, maybe doing some email, playing with the cat. And what happens is you're your heart rate goes down, blood pressure may go down a little bit. And when you come back at the designated time, looks like you've had a brain transplant and the conversation goes very differently. Right. Right. You have more within you to think about, to connect to, rather than the kind of attack or, or the fly. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, we talked before we came on about COVID and I was thinking about the cost of COVID to couple relationships, to family relationships. And, you know, some of them have been that people have got very ill or very depressed. 
And so they don't have that generative capacity to, I mean, this is in life anyway, this can happen, but I think it, the the volume has been turned up through COVID, through the lack of connection and, and structure and all the things that we know about. So when you're trying to connect with someone who's actually ill and doesn't have the capacity or they're depressed and they don't have capacity, how do you weather the weather? Mm, that's a wonderful question. Yeah. So first of all, when somebody is depressed, you kindly ask, how are you doing? How are you feeling today? Talk to me about it a little bit. And you open up a channel for that person to actually share their internal world and what's going on with them. Then you empathize. So first you're showing interest, even if somebody is very withdrawn, and then showing compassion with empathy. Boy, sounds like you really feel terrible. Mm -hmm. Is there anything I can do? Is there anything I can do to make you feel more loved? That's one of our favorite questions. That's what one does. And of course, it's hard for the partner. Because, yeah, the, the, the bank's a bit empty at this point. Mm -hmm. You bet. You mm -hmm. bet. So, of course, it would be good for that partner to encourage uh, the depressed person to maybe get some help, maybe be evaluated, maybe for medication, for psychotherapy, for some kind of support system, mm -hmm. because you really want your partner to feel better. But just as their involved partner, you may not have all the talent, this not the talent, the skills and the tools, really, mm -hmm. the tools. Uh, and you shouldn't have to. As, so bring in more support, bring in more help, but continue as much as you can to create empathy for that person and some nurturing for yourself, too, as a caretaker. Mm -hmm. Good point. That's really helpful. Thank you. I was thinking you've got Thanksgiving coming up. I've got an American son-in-law, so they're having um, Thanksgiving. And many families here, we've got Christmas coming up. And for the UK, and I think for the US, it's the first time families have been together, mm. together um, since COVID. And there's been a lot of tension about power and control, really, and about choices. And that often, I think I saw in, in, in this book and in all of your work, it's about how you navigate with more positivity the difficulties and how you manage. It's not like there isn't going to be difficulties because there are difficulties every day. It's how you manage them and navigate them. So for people who are listening, who've got Thanksgiving coming or Christmas coming, what are the kind of, from your, what are the tools that you would fall back on? And you've got yours coming. So, I mean, you feel very close and there isn't much tension going on, but you know, there probably is always in some places. The great thing about Thanksgiving is that it's about uh, gratitude for what you have and feeling lucky for what you have and expressing that gratitude. And that's that's one of the pieces of advice in, in the love prescription is to really do it in very small ways. Say thank you. Thanks for making the bed. Thanks for looking so beautiful this morning. And, you know, really magnifying your observance and appreciation 
of what your partner is doing. There's a wonderful study by Robertson and Price that showed that in unhappy relationships, people miss 50% of the positivity that is actually there at their partner's there, doing. but they missed it. And it's there, but they missed it. What's yeah. the missing? Is that from not being able to take it in or having a small window of what, what, what in it, what makes people miss it? Well, we think that it has to do with a habit of mind that takes place when relationships aren't going well, where you're so focused on your partner's mistakes and correcting what your partner is doing wrong that you don't really see what your partner is doing right. You know, instead of catching your partner doing something wrong, you need to shift your habit of mind and see what your partner is doing right. And it turns out they're doing a lot. <laughs> and, you know, once you once you start really creating an atmosphere of appreciation and respect in the relationship, suddenly you see they're really pretty amazing <laughs> and they're really doing a lot for you. So, yeah. Let me offer something else about Thanksgiving or any kind of big family gatherings. We have other holidays coming up. Right. And that is people with COVID uh, present in the environment have felt very out of control. They've had to quarantine. This virus seems to be lurking about. They're wearing masks at a time we wore gloves. You know, we were cleaning like maniacs. And now controls are being dropped. But what that means is that people have been starving to have a sense of agency in their life. So they may overexert, <laughs> put it kindly, uh, their sense of control and try to control what's going on. And it may manifest as simply as you're planning dinner for 530 and they say, oh, that's way too early. I want to eat at 630. <laughs> OK, what do you do then? Well, depending on how many people are there, you can be a good, you know, democratic person and say, okay, let's take a vote. You can do that. Or you can say, hmm, not a bad idea. I think we could probably do that and be kind and compromise or say, how about if we cut the time in the middle, you know, 545. So <laughs> you want to honor people's need to feel some control over something in their lives after emerging from this crazy pandemic we've been in for two and a half years. At the same time, you don't want to give up all your control. <laughs> if you're the one cooking the turkey, you can say, well, you know, I'm a little afraid that turkey may be cold since I put it in at such and such a time and I'll take it out at five. What do you think? Would you rather have cold turkey or would you rather <laughs> eat at 530? You know, I mean, you give them a choice, right? So you can give people choices when they're exerting some point of view, that choice or maybe another choice, pointing out what the differences will be if one choice or another is made. And I think maybe a lot of what you're saying, both in relationship as a couple, but also as a family, is being open to collaboration and being in relationship. Okay. So rather than having kind of power top down or 
having to be right. It's constantly collaborating, acknowledging, allowing, including. But it's, I mean, that it sounds warm and fuzzy. It's quite, it can be hard to do, right? It really can, Julia, but you're making a brilliant point. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Very rare. <laughs> no, I doubt that. Which is that you're coming together to enjoy space and time and, of course, intake during Thanksgiving <laughs> all together, right? So how can you make that the most fun, the most caring, sensitive to, uh, but loving? That's why we come together, right? Share a little love between us. So you keep thinking, how can I be more loving? And that naturally feeds into collaboration. Mm -hmm. Exactly what you're talking about. I completely. And I think one of the big losses in the last few years, and maybe before in this sort of epidemic of doing and not being and busyness, but then with COVID is um, not having enough fun, not having enough play, not having enough silliness, not having enough kind of dreams, but always kind of goal directed and, you know, empty the dishwasher this way or fill it that way. It becomes, everything becomes such a battle rather than kind of playful and open and and using our creative capacity to be generative and silly with each other. Feels yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're spot on there. We, we did a study with 40,000 couples about to enter therapy. And 80% of them said that fun had come to die in their relationship. So, you know, staying playful and, you know, and, and having fun and really just being open to doing frivolous, silly things together is so important in a relationship. And, and also what I got from you, because, you know, everyone here, we're just about to go into a recession if we're not in it already. And we have chaotic politics and, you know, lots of different. <laughs> So it's quite hard to switch your mindset from looking at your emails and worrying about, you know, the, your gas bills to saying, let's play, you know, ball or ping pong or, but right. actually it's a habit as well though, isn't it? It is a, it is a habit that we are wired, you know, we're fired to get wired together. We fire together. So if you have a habit of Saturdays going to the park and playing or it can, that's how you develop it, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, creating these rituals for adventure and play and fun really is a secret to making sure it happens. The same thing with cuddling, you know, finding a time to do that. Julie and I have a cuddle couch and, you know, and, we, and after dinner, we get on that cuddle couch and, you know, we watch murder mysteries. British murder mysteries, <laughs> yes, which yeah. are the best in the world. Yeah. And we're cuddling. Poirot. Do you watch Poirot and what do you right. watch? Poirot. All yes. right. Yeah. Yeah. Midsummer Murders. And we love Midsummer <laughs> Murders. I tell you why you and I like murder mysteries is because you get the bad guy and it has a happy ending, right? That's right. Except why don't they <laughs> ever doesn't have that? Well, why don't they ever have good relationships? No, because they're bonkers, aren't they? Drinking. <laughs> they never reply to texts. Exactly. Right, right. They're too busy. Yeah. Too busy. They need to read our book. They need to read your book and prioritize the relationship, right? Exactly. What do you and Mike do to 
make sure you have fun. So we've been married 42 years, which isn't bad. Uh We we watch telly. If Uh I watch a program that he thinks is his, it's like I've been unfaithful. It's literally like, (laughs) how could you watch that episode? (laughs) How could you? How dare you? (laughs) <laughs> that's right it's an unspoken law in our house you will be punished if you do that that's right <laughs> i mean i think a bit more seriously the big thing we do is we walk a lot together mm. um, and getting outside and being in nature is the thing that kind of connects us most i think oh, and we, we, you know we talk a lot walking and if there's something difficult happening we always go for a big walk um to talk it through oh, so um, those of you watching, do you have some questions? Because we've got we've only got 15 minutes. I've got one here, which is my marriage has been hit by infidelity, and I don't think there is empathy and compassion from my unfaithful partner. I have developed PTSD for which I'm seeing a trauma therapist and doing EMDR. Would you have any supportive tips for me as I as I feel the relationship is broken down so that I can finally move forward? Thank you. I'm so sorry. That's so painful. Oh, indeed it is. And we see many, many, many couples who suffer from infidelity. And I'm happy to say that the model that we have created to treat infidelity within the relationship as a couple therapy looks like it's successful. We're doing a research study on it right now as we speak. And What needs to happen is a three-step process within the relationship. The first we call a tone. And what that means is that the hurt partner is allowed to ask any question they want of the other, but probably avoid the ones that may trigger more PTSD, like what position did you have sex in? You stay away with those. But Where did you meet? How did you meet? Really learning as much as you can. Yep. The facts of it uh, so that you can really uh, feel like your partner is telling the truth because always infidelity includes betrayal of of speech, of lying. There's lying there. So transparency and truth. Also, the partner who betrayed the other needs to express extreme remorse, sorrow, guilt, uh, a huge apology. And they may have to do that over and over and over and over again. Every time your PTSD is triggered, which can be very often with those unwanted pictures and thoughts coming into your mind. So once that phase kind of go slowly down, the second phase enters in, which is called a tune. And a tune means you're really going to work hard on examining the marriage now. You don't do that at first, because that would be blaming you too. You wait. And then in the second phase, you look at the marriage, how the marriage proceeded. Usually affairs occur out of some kind of emotional distance, conflict avoidance, loneliness. So you rebuild marriage number two, except with the same partner, where you recast how you handle conflict, 
create more bids for connection, create more rituals for connection, and so on, some of which is in the book that we've just written. So that may take a nice long time. And the third phase we call attach. So it's atone, attune, attach. And attachment in that phase, typically couples begin to be physically intimate if they haven't already. And hopefully you've built enough trust and transparency during the first two phases that physical intimacy and that vulnerability, which is very extreme, feels a little bit more uh, uh, possible for you uh, now that there's a little more emotional intimacy too. In addition, you recommit to the relationship during that phase. A very Some people will have a recommitment ceremony, even with one another or with other people. Um, but it's an anchoring in of that new commitment to this marriage, this partner, with the understanding of what consequence will occur if infidelity occurs again. That feels such a helpful answer, isn't it? Is you can't kind of bury it and just say sorry. It takes a lot of time and work to really interrogate yeah. it. And That's right. Find out what went wrong, and then this, this three-phase process gives you a, a sort of a structure that can hold you to manage the discomfort of those different processes that's right, right. so um alfredo says how do you let go of feelings of not being listened to in the past in order to move forward okay so when you haven't been listened to in the past, it's really necessary, absolutely crucial, that you process the most painful incidents where that occurred. You know, what you're talking about is either a turning away or a turning against of uh, your bid for connection. Mm -hmm. So you pick one of those, and we have a five-step process that we help couples go through to fully understand what happened during those incidents, not with an apology in the beginning, but first with each person discussing their own feelings during that pocket of time when the incident occurred, then giving a narrative of their perception of what happened using lots of I, I heard you say, I saw this look on your face, I thought you were thinking, I, 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 no blaming and finger pointing, while the other person listens, maybe takes notes, summarizes it, and gives a little bit of validation, like, okay, if I were in your shoes, I could see how you'd see it that way. And then changing roles, the other person does the same thing. In the third step, you examine triggers, triggers being feelings, negative ones that got started long before you ever had this relationship. If there are any of those contained in this incident that you felt, say what those are and where they may have gotten started. And finally, in the fourth step, you begin to acknowledge your own responsibility for whatever happened and make an apology. Finally, in the fifth step, you look forward into 
how can you avoid something like this from happening again? And it's only with that kind of thorough processing that the memory of that past incident will soften and slowly but surely turn to smoke. Because you've got greater depth of understanding. You're not just left with the injury of not being listened to. You've kind of opened your love map, if you like, of depth of understanding each each other more. So, John, how do you deal with jealousy in a relationship? What a great question. Well, you know, it's interesting because jealousy is very natural. Uh, And, you know, as David Buss has pointed out, it really is part of being connected and attaching. So I think you deal with jealousy by talking about what you feel and what you're afraid of and processing these incidents where your jealousy reached a really big height and talking for what you need, talking about your positive need to feel more secure in the relationship. Mm -hmm. Let me just mention that typically jealousy may come out by blaming the partner for doing something that triggered your jealousy. So instead of pointing the finger and blaming, you say something like, you know, when you danced with Sally at the party, I really felt horrible. I felt scared that you were going to find her more attractive than me etc, etc. And then uh, what I found most people suffering from jealousy need is reassurance from the partner that they are still the one, the loved one, the attractive one, the one and only that they are enough for this partner. The partner is not looking for someone. Mm. (laughs) You're the one. He's the one. That's perfect. (laughs) Um, It it left me speechless. So which advice for loving partner of 37 years together, but not fancying them? So can you give me advice for my loving partner of 37 years, um, but not fancying them and not feeling sexually attracted to them? Mm. Okay. So... First of all, really look at the landscape of the relationship and see whether or not you feel emotionally connected to that partner. Because oftentimes, not feeling physically distant is because you are emotionally distant. Mm -hmm. So first, really look carefully. Do you feel loved? Do you feel valued? Do you feel really good about yourself when you're with that partner? Uh, Do you feel your bids for connection being responded to? Do you have fun together? Do you have play together? Now, if all those are in place, um, a couple of simple things, even if you're not attracted to your partner the way you might have been 30, 40 years ago, turn off the lights, maybe light a couple of candles, wear something sexy so you feel sexy, right? You feel sexy. Let him come to you. Very good advice. Um, So I've got maybe time for one more, which is how will I know it's time to give up on a relationship? You know, one of the one of the ways of knowing that it's time to give up is when the 
fondness and admiration system is completely dead. And it's been replaced by denigration and belittling. And when that's happened, uh, it's time to think about moving on. And you can't switch that back on. Is there too much injury, too many, too many, too much kind of that's been cut away by all the many injuries? You know, I think you need to test that theory mm-hmm. by doing some heavy duty processing of the worst attachment injuries, the worst emotional injuries you have felt in the relationship, seeing whether your partner owns some responsibility for that and is willing to work on change. If they're not working on change, on growth within themselves, as well as within the relationship, then you know the relationship isn't going to change, maybe time to go. But if there is a little tiny spark of owning some responsibility and saying, yeah, I probably shouldn't do that. And there's a little ember of love, tiny little ember. Tiny flame. Blow on it. <laughs> yes. So we've only got a minute left. And I just wondered if there were a few, one kind of sentence each that you wanted to leave us with, as well as your wonderful book, The, the Seven Day Prescription. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Well, my favorite one is that in really great relationships, people have seem to have the motto, when you're upset, the world stops and I listen. That's wonderful. It's lovely. And I think mine, given COVID again, coming out of that, is take time to ask each other this open-ended question. What are you dreaming about for the coming year? Nice. What are you dreaming about? I'd love to know what you two are dreaming about, but I think we've come to the end of our time. (laughs) (laughs) Being grandparents, being good grandparents. And hopefully... That's lovely. And seeing a little more love in the world. That's what I'm dreaming about. Yes, that would be a good thing too. I feel so grateful to all that you've done for me and for all of us. So... Um, have a wonderful Thanksgiving, and I hope maybe we can meet another time. But from on behalf great. of How to Academy in the audience, thank you so much. Thank you. This episode of the podcast starred John and Julie Gottman and was presented by Julia Samuel. The producer was Nicole Wong, and the series is made by myself and Esme Bright. Our editor is John Doughty. Please do share the show far and wide and rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.